Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks, a special edition this week. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. And I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. This week we have a special edition podcast for you with a very special guest. His name is John Thorne. And he, in my opinion, is the founding father of Twin Peaks fandom, and and not just sort of ordinary fandom, but very deep dive, geeky, intelligent, thoughtful, and even critical fandom. Shortly after the end of the original Twin Peaks, he co-founded a legendary fanzine called Wrapped in Plastic. This thing was my Bible, and it was this thing that kept my Twin Peaks fandom alive because it explored every nook and cranny and episode of Twin Peaks, the original series, in a very thoughtful manner. And they spoke with cast members and writers and the co-creators of the show. And they got behind the scenes and they deconstructed how episodes were made and they did script analysis and they showed us what got shot, what didn't get shot, what could have been. They offered some amazing thoughtful essays on how to think about Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, the hard to love but deeply fascinating prequel film. The magazine ran for several years It went out of print, but John endured, and he is now active in the fan community again, writing about Twin Peaks, The Return, and he's had a a lot of amazing thoughts, and he's been a great guide for a lot of people through this new experience, and we've talked a lot about him and his writing on this podcast, so we're pretty thrilled to have him on the show and talk to him today. John, welcome to the podcast, and how are you today? I'm doing just great. It's really nice to talk to you today. Awesome. Last time, you know, uh, John and I, we had a sort of bonding experience at the beginning of (laughs) Twin Peaks The Return. We both were lucky enough, really, to be able to attend the Hollywood premiere of Twin Peaks, the the, the first two parts, um, what seems to be now like 80 million years ago, or maybe not. It's gone by so fast, actually. I I take that back. (laughs) It hasn't felt like that long ago. It's It's been, I've been so wrapped up in this journey. It doesn't feel like it's over in a blip, although we've experienced so much. John, that was a great experience at the premiere. Like looking back on that experience of being there and watching it, like what, what are your thoughts and feelings about that moment in time? Oh, that really was a fantastic night. I just have to say that was one of the best times of my life, uh, being able to go out and see Twin Peaks after 25 years to see it again on the big screen. But in addition to that, obviously to have uh, all the actors there, to have Mark Frost there, to have David Lynch there, uh, it was uh, it was for me, uh, someone who's been studying and writing about Twin Peaks for decades, uh, it was a real treat. And it was a great, uh, great time getting a chance to meet you and Damon Lindelof with you. That was a lot of fun. Yes, Damon was there that night too. There was it was a really cool evening. They did it really, really well. And I, I, I gotta think that for you, 
I mean, it must have been a really surreal experience just to kind of give a brief history and correct me if I'm wrong with any of my details. But John, you started this uh, amazing publication, Wrapped in Plastic, shortly after the end of the original Twin Peaks. And for years, you and the writers at that magazine, like, you know, you you studied and you chronicled and you surveyed every inch of the original show. You interviewed so many members of the cast, the creators, so many of the writers of that show, and really kind of helped put together the body of knowledge that those of us who are super fans, but even like I think journalists and TV critics who wanted to understand how that show worked and how the, the creative story, the a vibrant but turbulent creative story of making Twin Peaks, um, everything that we kind of know, a lot of what we know about that experience comes courtesy of what you guys did, kind of pioneered the format of both the fanzine, but also kind of the deep dive geeky study <laughs> of, of cult shows and pop culture shows in general. So here you were through all of these years producing that magazine and uh, without any hope or thought of maybe the show coming back, and now it comes back. I'd love to know just how, how surreal has this whole experience been enjoying the return? It really has been a strange experience. Um, I do want to acknowledge uh, my uh, co-creator of Raft and Plastic, and that was Craig Miller. Uh, it really was the both of us who did that magazine. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, Craig passed away a number of years ago and is not here to see the return. I think he would be uh, just absolutely thrilled like I am. Uh, yeah, we, uh, you know, we started Wrapped in Plastic after Firewalk With Me, uh, it was a couple of months after it had been at the theaters. And you're absolutely right. We felt like it was uh, a unique special television show and it was something that we always said we wanted to document that show as best we could we wanted to explore every nook and cranny we wanted to interview not only uh, the actors we were fortunate enough to get the actors the entire creative team uh mark frost david lynch robert Engels, and harley payton but we also wanted to to talk to um scholars uh other creative talent who'd been inspired by Twin Peaks. And so, yeah, we did it for 13 years. And I will say during those 13 years, I, I often said I, Twin Peaks will never come back. And so uh, it's a dream come true. It did come back. It has. And for our listeners to know, um, I, I wrote a piece about John and the legacy of Wrapped in Plastic and what he and Craig created. And I'll put a link to it in the post that, that will contain this podcast. So if you guys want to check out and take a deeper dive into the history of Wrapped in Plastic, I totally appreciate it. That I, I would appreciate it if you read it, just so that you can get to know more about what these guys did. And there is a book, right? You, you published a book a couple of years ago that um, The Essential Wrapped in Plastic, it's called what, John? Yes, it's it. It's the essential wrapped in plastic pathways to Twin Peaks. And uh, what I did was I took most of the important material uh, about Twin Peaks from the magazine. Uh, much of it was out of print and assembled it uh, sort of in a new format in this book. So it's a it's an episode guide. It discusses every episode. It also discusses the scripts that were written and scenes that were cut out of every episode. It has commentary associated with every episode from 
the actors uh, and and the writers. Uh, and then I go into depth uh, in Firewalk with me. Uh, I have a couple of essays about that uh, and more interview material. And a lot of that was out of print. I wanted to get it back in print, and uh, so that's what I did. Uh, uh, Wrapped in Plastic covered more than Twin Peaks. We did a lot on the works of Mark Frost and the works of David Lynch. All that's still out there in the magazine if you want to go seek it out. Right. Please, if, if you have fallen in love with Twin Peaks over the course of the revival here, and if your memory is about the original Twin Peaks is foggy, or if you actually have never seen the original Twin Peaks, I would encourage you all to go and get this book because it would be a valuable companion to you in sort of refreshing your memory and giving you insights into the show. And it's just, a, it's a really cool thing. I could geek out on it forever. Let's just talk about this season, Twin Peaks, The Return. And John, are you happy with what you've gotten? Have you been disappointed? Have you been <laughs> fulfilled? Like, what, what do you make of this story? Uh, well, I will tell you, I am very happy with what uh, what they've done. I'm extremely pleased. Um, I, I can't think of another television experience where I, on Sunday nights, am so glued to the TV, sometimes jumping out of my chair. But again, you know, I'm, I'm really invested in Twin Peaks and I've spent a lot of time with it. Uh, I am happy with it, and I, you know, my philosophy about the whole thing was to to not really have any expectations. My good friend uh, David Bushman said you kind of have to meet David Lynch on his own terms, and that's how I approached this. So it was going to be what it was going to be, and I was going to embrace it. Yes, there have been times where it seemed like it's been slow. But now that we, it seemed to be receding now a little bit, uh, we're getting further away from it. I know we still have two hours to go, but this existing 16 hours, I'm getting a little more perspective on it. And I, I'm seeing uh, a little more of the structure, I think. And uh, I appreciate it. Uh, I think it's, uh, I, I really do think it's a work of art and I'm very happy. John, I'd I'd love to know just because right from the beginning of this season, you know, I almost kind of feel like there's been this wonderful game of trying to figure out how to watch this show. I, I felt like that was something that was very much on my mind in the first few episodes. Um, what was it like for you just kind of watching the initial batch of episodes, you know, the, the two-hour premiere? You're someone who's just so steeped in Twin Peaks. You know, was it exciting? Were you kind of like, why are we spending 40 minutes? minutes in New York like you know there's just so many shocks to the system right from the beginning with this season and I'd love to know how somebody like you who's just thought so much about every aspect of the show that we had previously what was that experience like kind of digging into these new episodes yeah no I, you know the I loved the first two hours of course I was very lucky to see it uh in an in in unusual uh environment with the premiere in LA but uh, I've watched it a number of times, and um, I'm very happy that Lynch and Frost are expanding the uh, the cosmos, the cosmology of of Twin Peaks. Um, I always thought that there was room for those characters to go beyond, or the story to go beyond just the town, and uh, so I was very very happy to see uh, scenes in New York, uh, to you know, to see this mystery expanding. Uh, you know, I, I think they've got it plotted out and figured out to a certain extent. So, um, yeah, every week trying to assemble clues and, and figure out where the narrative is going. 
I find it really quite a delight to do that. Um, and yes, sometimes it's, it's frustrating too. You're, you're, you think you're going one way and it, it sort of zigzags and goes <laughs> another way. But again, you know, that's, that's, I meet it on its terms and, and, uh, yeah, just take it in and I just love it. I'd love to know how you felt about the show's treatment of Agent Cooper and dividing him essentially into these two characters. Uh, one, Mr. C, a character that we met in the very last episode of the original series, Doppelganger Cooper, and getting to know his story and what he's been up to in the world since the end of Twin Peaks, but also kind of experiencing you know, classic Cooper, if you will, in sort of the muffled, sleepwalking form <laughs> of, of Dougie Jones, and then waiting you know, 15 and a half hours, a, a little less because we got a little hint of him in the first couple hours, but essentially waiting almost the entirety of the series to see him in the Cooper form that we know and love. How did you feel about the treatment of Cooper? Were you at all frustrated that we didn't get to this point sooner? And do you like that story? I do like the story a lot. And I'm glad we're talking now after part 16 and not you know before it, because obviously we all know that Cooper is back. Uh, and we spent a long time with Dougie Jones, a very long time. And yes, <laughs> there's no doubt that during those, tw- I think it was 12 weeks, we were, we were, um, you know, just on, on the edge of our seats hoping that that this, you know, new next episode will be where Cooper emerges. Um, but now that Cooper is back, I, and again, as I said, the show is kind of, I'm getting a little more perspective on it. I really very much appreciate the Dougie Jones storyline. I, I think it was very important to the character of Dale Cooper because I think he was somewhat of a, well, you know, he had failed at the end of the uh, first series um, and he was somewhat a lost soul. And I think what happened to him through Dougie is that he became a better person than he was. Now, of course, Dale Cooper was always a great, character, but I think he became perhaps a more rounded character. He grew in a certain way, became a better person, and and all the people who encountered Dougie became better people, too. So in, now, with some perspective, I very much appreciate that. I think it was a fascinating way to address that character. I hope I'm right, but I think Dale Cooper may be even a a better character than he was, certainly a character who would not fail now if he got, went into the Red Room again. Ah, that's an interesting read, John, and I, I haven't really thought about it with that perspective. Could you elaborate on that? How did Agent Cooper fail at the end of the original Twin Peaks? Yeah, you know, he, uh, well, we haven't had any information on Annie Blackburn, and I don't know if we will, but uh, he went into uh, the Red Room Black Lodge to rescue Annie, and uh, he, I think he confronted some of his own demons and his own fears. He he showed some fear, and, uh, you know, the mythology of the show says if you, if you have imperfect courage, then, you know, you will fall, and the, the darker side of you will, will dominate. Uh, and so I think right now it's somewhat of a weak hinge, but I, I believe that Cooper, yeah, I think believe Cooper that he failed in that final episode. He showed some fear, some doubt. And, and as he split into two people, uh, the, the bad Cooper and the good Cooper, there's something about what happened to him as Dougie, the connection that he made 
particularly to Sonny Jim, I think, that I think he recognized some things that maybe were important in life that he may have, he may have overlooked in the past. Um, anyway, you know, it, it's sort of a theory I'm developing on the fly, but we don't, we've only seen a glimpse of him, but, and it was a wonderful glimpse. But I do think that that whole uh, Dougie Jones experience prepared him for the ordeal he's about to face. I think that's an interesting read. I haven't really given that much thought, but what you kind of point to there is that we really kind of don't have great explanation yet or insight into essentially how doppelgangers are made in the red room space. And, you know, do they automatically exist the second you step in? Are they always residing there? Or if you find yourself in the red room, do you do something? Do you behave in a certain way? Do you think thoughts or, or whatever that triggers something that activates the creation of a doppelganger? And then it becomes sort of like this death struggle about which one of you is actually going to get out of that and get into the room. And I do think that, you know, obviously that last episode of Twin Peaks of the original series one of the greatest hours of TV ever. And that final 15 minutes or so in the Red Room is just like bonkers. And it's totally open to interpretation. Uh, and I can see how one of those inter- interpretations could be that when he went in there to rescue Annie, you know, the overwhelming experience of encountering weirdness and demons and bringing in all of his own worldly attachments and his own correct priorities and wrong priorities and all of his flawed self could could be such that it, it triggered the creation of a doppelganger and then he just lost. And I can also see how then experiencing life anew as Dougie Jones and experiencing these attachments both kind of fulfilling some maybe longings that he's always had for domesticity and a family and a child, but also kind of uh, making peace with those things and giving up those things and and worldly attachments that maybe get in the way of higher spiritual callings. All of that journey in Vegas through Dougie could have improved and sharpened his heroic character for what comes next. So this is all to say, (laughs) I'm liking your theory. That's what I'm, I'm thinking in my head as that's what you provoked in me. And I'm, am I maybe kind of reflecting some of your ideas there? Yeah, I, I, I really do think David Lynch is very much interested, certainly at the time was interested in more of the internal conflict in the character of Cooper than the external conflict that he was, you know, uh, opposed uh, to Wyndham Earl and he had to, to defeat Wyndham Earl. It was more about Cooper and overcoming whatever uh, barriers Cooper himself had placed in his mind. And so, yes, that's exactly right. That's what he failed to do. And maybe now has come to some peace with those parts of himself. We'll see what the next two hours have to give us. And John, I'd love to know, because one of the things that you're referring to is um, when Dale goes into the Red Room in that season two finale, there are a lot of just haunting aspects of that that I find that as we go into these last two episodes, I've been sort of returning to that sequence just because I'm intrigued to see that was sort of the last attempt at ending slash putting mm. some interesting stamp on the Twin Peaks narrative. And one thing that, I, that you just kind of sparked this, there's that moment where... 
the women in Agent Cooper's life within the Red Room seem to be almost kind of shape-shifting into each other. You know, we see Caroline, his long-ago lover slash wife of his now psychopathic ex-partner. We see Annie Blackburn. This is sort of the moments when we're seeing Laura or Laura's white-eyed doppelganger. I'm not sure it's right to necessarily put any correct phrase on, on which Laura that is. And I'm so struck by what you're saying, this notion that, like, I mean, Dale then, for lack of a better word, he, he was kind of in a weird place romantically. And I, I'm very struck that, like, you're right that, like, this interesting sort of domestic adventure that he's been on is just such a radical shift for him. I'd love to know, you had a great sort of piece about really digging into the history of the Red Room, both on screen and off screen. And, you know, the way that what we know of the Red Room was sort of the result of these interesting, sometimes haphazard attempts, you know, by the production to explain it or not explain it in the case of David Lynch. How have you felt about the Red Room aspect of this new season? You know, like, has it sort of, has it evolved your understanding of what that means for Twin Peaks, what that sort of mythology is and how it interacts with the story? I, well, there's certainly a lot of new material to think about. And I, to be honest with you, I, I'm not I, I'm not quite sure uh, if I have a you know a good theory or a good reading right now of how the, all of these forces and there seems to be more than just the red room forces uh, at play and and how you know what their purpose is or you know what their goal is I'm still not sure about that but you know it's interesting that you mention the Red Room and its its evolution over the course of the series. I mean, it's ironic in a way that almost the key elements of the of the Twin Peaks narrative were all essentially accidents or unplanned. So that the <laughs> dream sequence, the dream sequence that we see way back in the first season, was really you know the the material they had shot for the European ending. Uh, you know, they wanted to make it a standalone European film and they they took that material they made it a dream once they made it a dream then they kind of had to map the narrative to that dream of course the dream had been ad-libbed uh just for that purpose of of providing (laughs) another ending so the the story tries to uh you know make sense of that dream and so it sort of has to to follow essentially an ad-libbed piece and then at the end of the series we have uh uh, the original script to the final episode being thrown away and David Lynch coming in and recreating that final hour and changing some of the rules again and, of course, introducing these new concepts and this new mythology. Uh, and then again in Firewalk With Me, uh, it had been planned to go perhaps one way and Kyle MacLachlan at the time did not want to participate as much and so they had to kind of rework it on the fly and so, again, what you see <laughs> happening in throughout the narrative of Twin Peaks is these sort of constant unplanned changes that then get incorporated into the mythology. And so I, I do believe that the new series is, is some attempt at uh, reconciling some of the uh, discrepancies and, and maybe trying to, uh, to, to broaden it, to, to widen the the mythology surrounding the Red Room. So you mentioned doppelgangers, and for 25 years we've discussed doppelgangers as sort of the the opposite self, the evil self, so to speak. But now the series is introducing the idea of tulpas, which are these these thought forms, uh, which may or may not be doppelgangers, but other selves. And so I think Lynch and Frost 
are expanding the mythology. Uh, it may get way more confusing than it was, but it may also embrace <laughs> some of those kind of crazy concepts and, uh, you know, instead of trying to fix them, just move forward with them. Right. I think that we will be looking back on 18 hours of Twin Peaks and puzzling over them and studying them and making sense of them oh, for yeah. years. <laughs> and I know, John, you've already you've already talked about that, how in, on Twitter and other places, I know that you've said that maybe for, for, for a certain class of Twin Peaks fans, the fun <laughs> has just begun. But before I ask you about that, I'd just love to know, just looking ahead to the more immediate future, you know, we're, we're heading into this finale Dale Cooper is now en route to Twin Peaks by way of Spokane on the Mitchum plane. Uh, who, who knew that that Agent Cooper would become best buds with casino mobster gangsters in this story? Mr. C is presumably on his way to Twin Peaks too. perhaps Gordon Cole and the whole Blue Rose crew for some kind of big confrontation and climax. And I think that um, in terms of what that might be and what that might look like, it seems to all hinge on what Mr. C wants. What has be what what he's what has he been searching for all season long? Where does he want to go? What does he want to accomplish? We don't have any solid details or clarity on that. So I ask mm-hmm. you, John, what is your theory? What does Mr. C want? What What do these coordinates pertain to? And what does he want to do when he gets there? Uh, well, I think I can answer some of that. Again, it's just, it's just speculation. But uh, there is, you're right, a convergence of forces that are all coming to Twin Peaks. Uh, Mr. C said very, very early on, he showed Daria this uh, distorted ace of spades and he said this is what i want and i think uh we can probably make a good educated guess that what he wants is this being called the experiment that we've seen in the glass box break out and kill sam and tracy that we've seen spit out this viscous substance uh in part eight <laughs> Uh, when Andy has now had a vision of the experiment, uh, this is what Mr. C wants. And I think whatever this being is, we probably could argue that this being is uh, uh, something of great, great power, probably evil, but it, it's hard to say for sure in, in the way they, they lay this out. We, we know that Hawk has referenced it in his map. The symbol that, that Mr. C showed is, is on the Hawk map and Hawk, is almost frightened of it. And he tells Frank, you do not want to know about that. And I think that's experiment for, you know, whatever they're going to call it, that being is going to manifest or can be uh, accessed at these coordinates in Twin Peaks. And uh, maybe Mr. C wants to kill experiment or take experiments place or tap into the power. I, I don't know. And these are all kind of mundane ideas. <laughs> I'm sure Lynch and Frost are have something much more, uh, sophisticated to give us, but he's probably, uh, you know, about to ach- achieve some sort of catastrophic power uh, through this being, and it will come to be in Twin Peaks. And all the pieces are now being put in place. Uh, Cooper is on his way, but uh, Nado, uh, the eyeless woman from the Purple Realm, uh, has appeared now in Twin Peaks, and she is in the jail. She probably has a connection to Diane. 
because uh, Diane said I'm in the sheriff's station and there's something going on with Diane. She's she's very important, too, I think. And whoever this Freddie Sykes character is with the green glove has now been placed into the jail cell next to Nate. All the, the these pieces have been moved on this. Uh, ironically, again, it's a chessboard, I think, uh, to go back to the second season. The pieces are being put in place. Mr. C referred to it as a game. He said the game begins. And so uh, we are about to see this confrontation uh, between the forces of good and the forces of bad. And um, we've all got our fingers crossed that the good will win. John, uh, you know, I, I think it's such a great way to phrase that, this idea that like all the pieces are coming into place. And um, one thing I'd love to ask you about is uh, we've all, each in our own way, I think, been fascinated by and struggling with the Audrey se- sequences in mm. this sort of last batch of episodes. Um, you know, like full disclosure, and, and, you know, Jeff and I kind of discussed this. I was like all the way in on it by the day after that first scene. I, I think it just came from like digging really deep into that seed and watching it enough and beginning to just feel the strange tone of it. And I recall that um, earlier this month, uh, I believe you kind of tweeted out something that I found really interesting, which was, you know, this idea that like the Audrey that we knew in season one of Twin Peaks was perhaps a somewhat different character than she became in season two. And that, you know, this in some respects, what we'd seen of her was perhaps less of a departure than some sort of interesting return to some earlier ideas about her. How have you felt about her in general in this season and what do you think is going on with that last <laughs> shot of part 16 wow uh well let's yeah let's talk about audrey a little bit I, you know i um whenever i watch season one of twin peaks those first seven or eight episodes um uh, i just find audrey a very compelling character and I, i'm moved by her she's obviously a troubled soul she's obviously got some deep problems she laughs when uh uh, you know, when Ben is slapped, but she cries when, when Leland is dancing. And uh, she, she's got something, some trouble. And what happened in season two was they kind of made her more of a sidekick detective, and then she became the sidekick business partner. And uh, that nuance was lost, I think. And these scenes, we've only had a few of them, but uh, particularly the second scene uh, with Audrey where she she breaks down and she cries. It reminded me of the first season, Audrey, of this character who was struggling with perhaps some psychological issues. And I was moved by it again. I, it really pulled me way back to that first season. And I thought, yeah, this is, I'm glad they did this. I want to see Audrey like this. Um, I want, I want to see her overcome it, of course, but um, I want to explore her as she was originally I think conceived in season one. I've watched those scenes with her and Charlie a couple of times. I find those scenes, the first time I watched the saw it, I, I was really kind of put off by it. Um, it, was, <laughs> it was very unusual, but uh, the second time I was fascinated by it. I thought it was maybe the best scene in this, in the, in the, uh, in that installment. It's wonderfully acted by those two actors. And um, it's intriguing because it's obviously it has a staged quality to it. There's an arch quality to it. It's not uh, natural. And so it was, it was kind of clear up, you know, right from the beginning that it wasn't really necessarily happening in reality. Where Audrey is right now, I don't know. And, um, you know, obviously they've, they've thrown a twist at us now. And so uh, is Audrey in some 
psychological uh, rehab hospital and 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 imagining these things, or is it something more supernatural having to do with the powers that, that surround Twin Peaks? Uh, I really. I don't know. Yeah, it remains baffling and mysterious, uh, and I'm loving it. Like, unlike Darren, I didn't like it immediately, and uh, I will defend my dislike of it on the grounds of it. It was just such a jarring experience, and maybe not necessarily that first time with them. Maybe the um, in terms of the performances, uh, I wasn't convinced by the actors that they were even playing something fake or unreal. Like I, I wasn't, uh, yeah. Oh, I, like, really? I think though, I think Darren started to talk me into it. The second time we saw them, I thought it was really well done, but yeah. b- better written. Like the, the maybe the yeah. actors more comfortable with whatever idea it was that Lynch and Frost were going for. It retroactively then improved the first scene for me, and now I'm kind of completely all in. But now I'm completely mystified by the whole thing all over again. By that last <laughs> moment uh, at the, I mean, not that I don't like it. I I have theories, but I don't have theories. Like I guess maybe the big question I have about this is that clearly that last moment in part 16 indicated that yes audrey is not all right in her mind but what i'm curious the big question i have is is it just her like in terms of the these audrey Mm. experiences that we've seen over the past several episodes does it just represent her experience of reality how much of everything else that we've seen is sort of quote-unquote taking place in her head and or is her own sort of like frazzled state of being and mind affecting the reality of Twin Peaks around her? Do you have any thoughts on that? Is Audrey's experience just all about Audrey's experience or is she maybe affecting everyone else's experience in some way as well? Wow. Well, I, I hadn't really thought of that because I'm not quite sure they would really have to kind of explain why. And I don't see anything in the narrative, the original show or now that would... Um, allow for Audrey to suddenly have that kind of impact on the story. I guess I would narrow it down and look at it, you know, on a, on a smaller level. I guess I do think some of what we've seen in the Roadhouse, particularly these sequences where we have characters talking about things that the story's never going <laughs> to come back to again. These are sort of melodramatic slices of life in Twin Peaks, and that's how I was originally kind of assessing it, that it was sort of the show acknowledging that there is soap opera going on around us, but we're not going to pay attention to it this time. So every once in a while, a piece of another story would pass through and we would, we would glimpse it, but it would, it would continue on its way. And, and that's all we'd get now. And that may still be a, a good way to read some of it, but now I wonder if some of those conversations or some of the, even the music that uh, was playing at the roadhouse was something that Audrey was experiencing in a different state. Perhaps she heard some of this, overheard other people talking around her and imagined it in the roadhouse setting, or she heard music on the radio and imagined it in the roadhouse setting. That being said, I think, I don't think that she imagined everything. I think some of the things that happened in the roadhouse with, with James probably really happened. Um, and did we see Audrey's 
version of that, but it really happened, or uh, you know, just some of it's Audrey and some of it's not, and and of course it would be impossible perhaps to to delineate which is which. But as for Audrey being a larger player, they've got two hours to establish that, and they they kind of have to for me. I don't yeah, see it yet. Yeah. I had not really conceived of this. I, I love the idea that those scenes of like the other people in the roadhouse, like w- w- whenever Trick runs in and says that someone almost ran him off mm-hmm. the road and, and his friends are shocked that he's no longer under house arrest. I so yeah. love the idea that those are almost these, like like it's as if there is another Twin Peaks that has just been running since 1992 right. and we're just, we're just kind of <laughs> checking. I, I love that idea so much. I, I had not really thought about that. D- did you got to come up with that sort of, sort of gradually as, as we just had more of those strange check-ins with the like roadhouse regulars. Yeah, uh, ab- yeah absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, the first time you're watching a, an installment, you, you really are just, I, for me, I'm just trying to process everything and connect it. And it's hard because <laughs> there's so much to think about. The second time through, I got to tell you the second time through when we got to the sequence with, and I've watched them two or three times, but with trick and the two women at the, at the booth, I was laughing out loud. I almost fell off the couch. I was laughing so hard because it was so absurd. The one character says, oh, you know, Angela's off dancing with so-and-so. And then, you know, what about her mom? She just got off her meds. And, and yeah, she got, you know, she's in the hospital. And, and you know, she almost died. And, and it's just this elaborate, insane soap opera. Yeah, Trick runs in. And now suddenly he's like, yeah, I'm under house arrest. Or, you know, it's just, it's crazy soap opera plot jumped into Twin Peaks, which you could argue Twin Peaks was addressing the idea of crazy soap opera plot way back when. Now it is again, but in a different yes, way. Yes, per- perhaps the stuff in the Roadhouse then has basically been cutaways to the rebooted version of Invitation to Love uh, 2017, <laughs> Invitation to Love, like grungy Roadhouse edition. Uh, we'll find <laughs> out. We'll find out. John, I- I'd love to ask you over the course of the season, you, like everyone else, we've we've come up with countless theories about what the heck is going on. And I'd love to know, what was maybe like one big theory that you had that you loved, but has turned out to be not true? And <laughs> what's one theory that you have that might still be in play? So what hasn't come true? One theory that hasn't come true mm. and one theory that might still be in play. Wow, uh, I can definitely tell you theories that haven't come through. Uh, I, you know, early on, I was trying to figure out, you know, uh, parsing every line of dialogue. You know, the, the the evolution of the arm tells Cooper two fifty three time and time again, and and there seems to be this 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 repetition, and and suddenly Cooper finds himself in the same scene with the one arm man. You know, there's there's a cycle going on. I thought, okay, we're seeing cycles, and He's coming out as Dougie Jones, and he, you know, the one-armed man says, you're, you know, one of you must die. And I thought, oh, they're setting us up, and Cooper, you know, Dougie's going to die. Uh, you know, he's going to die, and of course they wouldn't do that, right? But yeah, they're going to do that, and then Cooper's going to get thrown back in and have to cycle again and go through the so- socket again until he can get it right. Hmm. And so it was that, so that idea I had of, of uh, you know, he'll get it right eventually, but we have to see him do it a couple of times. And uh, oh, that was all <laughs> completely wrong. <laughs> I, mean, I really like the idea. I still wish I could, I could explore it, but um, it turned out not to be true at all. Um, wow. A theory that turned out to be 
true. Or, um, or, or not necessarily true, but might still be in play. Well, there. Okay, I think Laura Palmer still has a significant role to play. Uh, you know, Leland tells Cooper, find Laura. She's sucked out of the Red Room. Now we've got this idea of tulpas. Uh, you know, will, will we see Laura Palmer again? I'm almost certain. Uh, will Laura Palmer be alive again? Will there be a living Laura Palmer? I, I, I wonder if the show will end and Laura's alive. And then in a way, it kind of went full circle. We started with finding her body, and we end with her somehow restored to the world. That's a theory I have. It has not come true yet. I like it a lot. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, you can't predict Lynch and Frost. <laughs> I love uh, John, like kind of kind of bringing up Laura Palmer and how she's played into this season. I am a much more recent arrival in Twin Peaks than than either of you guys are, and uh, I actually first experienced the film Twin Peaks Firewalk with me earlier this year when Jeff sat me down at a conference room and explained the first forty five minutes of the movie to me before I even watched it. So like I kind of came to that film specifically with a lot of framing that I, I know that just back when it first came out it didn't have but I've always been very intrigued by Firewalk with me as this attempt by Lynch to sort of bring life back to Laura Palmer in a in a both explicit and more symbolic way I believe that I've seen you kind of refer to it somewhere in a term that I really like as a, a film that was and perhaps still is a work in progress I, I think that actually really sums up Firewalk with me and I, I'd love to know I mean how have you felt seeing how that film has just played in in a lot of really interesting ways some of them very you know plot specific with the return of of philip jeffries and otherwise perhaps in some more intangible ways i mean i feel like that was such a controversial thing when it came out and seeing how this new season has dealt with it built off of it it's been very interesting but but how, how have you kind of felt in you know does this season shift your experience or understanding of of firewalk with me in any way well yeah i mean Firewalk with me is essential to this new series, the new Twin Peaks. It's it's a fundamental aspect of the new Twin Peaks, and um, I don't think Lynch, I don't think Lynch ever finished with Twin Peaks, and then he went to Firewalk with me and struggled with that film a lot. I think it changed. I know it changed while it was being scripted. I know it changed while it was being filmed, and I know it changed while it was being edited. Uh, um, and uh, you know, of course. You know, we can sort of go off on a little tangent here. Lynch shot over four hours, some say five hours of material for Firewalk with me. He had to know it would never be shown theatrically. So why did he <laughs> indulge himself? I, I'm not sure it was an indulgence. I think he loved the characters. I think he loved the, the idea of Twin Peaks and wanted to explore it, all its nooks and crannies and, 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 and its other characters. And so now he's had that opportunity, 18 hours of Twin Peaks, and he can take his time and we can watch these long scenes with some of our favorite characters. But, you know, that's a tangent on Firewalk with me. I think in some ways his approach to making the film informed his approach to making the new show. But then, of course, the mythology in the film was never satisfactorily completed. I think he tried very much to make it a standalone work and he you know tweaked it in certain ways so that you could read yeah there's an identity for the monkey yeah there's an identity for judy yes laura palmer becomes her own agent she has agency and, and affects her own fate 
but he struggled with conveying these things. And now he's had the opportunity to come back to it. And I think the way I read Firewalk with me in the past now has to evolve because he's addressing it in a different way. So yeah, some of the themes and the ideas, hopefully more about Laura Palmer, but then these little tiny plot-specific things like who is Judy and what was Philip Jeffries up to, those are all kind of being explained to us uh, as the story goes along. John, we could probably talk forever about everything, and I and I, I really want to, but I just would love to ask you just a few more questions to wrap up here, which is looking ahead to the finale, not necessarily making any predictions, but what's a quality conclusion for you? Like just just generally speaking, what, what are you hoping for from the two hour finale? How would you be satisfied? Well, you know, um, I don't expect it to answer all our questions. Um, I think even Mark Frost has said, don't expect a neat and tidy ending. But, you know, maybe that has to do more with plot points and, you know, you know what is going on with Becky and Steven. I'm not sure. We'll, we'll probably get some more about that. But uh, I guess what I hope is that some of the characters are redeemed in some way, um, that they come there still seems to be a lot of haunted souls in Twin Peaks and surrounding Twin Peaks. We did get a very nice, I hope it remains the ending between Big Ed and Norma. I hope we get a few little things like that. And some of these characters are at peace at the end, but I suspect there will be a lot of loose ends too. And those will be just ambiguity. So, you know, what exactly did that mean? You know, why did that character do that thing. I'm not sure Lynch is going to spell it all out for you. There's gaps in the narrative, but there may be enough for us to make satisfying uh, pieces to fill in those gaps. So, as kind of a rambling answer, I I hope that some of the characters, I hope Cooper and Laura and Sarah Palmer find some peace, at least. We saw an ending like that in Firewalk with me. Again, it was kind of rushed. That Laura went to peace and Cooper seemed at peace. Maybe we will get uh, an ending it better fulfills that idea that the characters are. Happy. There must be a better kind of piece uh, for a happily ever after ending than uh, just spending the rest of your life in the red lo- in the red room of the Black Lodge <laughs> for Cooper and Laura. So I hope that you know I, I share your belief that Laura must factor prominently in the final act. I mean, we, we've all but been told that she will. I mean, part of Cooper's quest yeah. is to find Laura uh, per Leland, kind of giving him that great commission. And, you know, the great scene so long ago now in the show, but that memorable image that we can't forget of Laura just getting yanked out of, of the Red Room and then seeing her again encased in that sort of like golden globe um, and sent back to Earth by the firemen, kind of right. getting some explanation on, on what that means. So clearly the Laura piece and of course her mom, Sarah Palmer, that, that must factor pretty prominently um, in the end too. So I look forward to seeing how that plays out. John, I'd love to know in terms of the finale, one question for you is, Mm -hmm. do you want Cooper to stay in Twin Peaks at the end? Or would you love to see him return to Las (laughs) Vegas to Janie E and Sonny Jim? You know, it's, it's funny. Um, it, it seems like maybe they're going to somehow uh, produce another Dougie who can go take that role. But 
you know, uh, now that we've seen part 16, if Cooper accomplishes what he needs to do in Twin Peaks and he succeeds at beating the bad Cooper and setting some things right, I would be happy to see him go back to Las Vegas. Um, I think that would be a fitting ending. He, he found happiness there and and why not i mean i could even see him being an insurance agent <laughs> again you know i'm gonna go in and help people <laughs> make sure they get their money so um i mean the insurance agent darren i think you wrote a pretty interesting piece about the insurance agent from the first hour right yes you say something like it's all about insurance or it's about insurance so uh that may still come into play. God love you for referencing that. If there is even like the mention of the word insurance in the finale, I will consider that a complete success for my theory, which seems to probably <laughs> not be coming true anytime soon. I'd like to know, John, just uh, to sort of to look ahead to the long process of, you know, Twin Peaks season three coming to an end, which, as we said earlier, just the beginning of diving into it. You sort of put together this absolutely essential sort of graph of all the stories in the original Twin Peaks, of which my absolute favorite part is the small line (laughs) segment that just says Ben Horn goes crazy hyphen recreate civil war. Um, I'd like to know, I mean... A, are you going to do that for season three? And maybe on a larger level, B, do you think that doing such a thing, that trying to sort of concoct just how all these stories fit together, you know, is is that sort of some keystone to understanding this season? Uh, well, you know, uh, boy, that, there's a lot I could talk about there, and I don't want to. I don't want to waste too much time on that I, because I get into the weeds. But um, first, to answer your first question, <laughs> uh, I. I I am going to be writing about Twin Peaks and thinking about Twin Peaks. And I, I just give myself a plug here, if you don't mind. I am doing another magazine called the Blue Rose magazine. And it's sort of a continuation of Wrapped in Plastic. And doing that with a good friend, Scott Ryan. And we're, we're, try, we're going to try, let's see if we can, dig deep into the new show. But, you know, it's very interesting you bring up that plot chart. Because I don't think this Twin Peaks functions the, the same way the old Twin Peaks. Obviously, it doesn't. I mean, the old Twin Peaks was episode... It was serial, but there was there was episodes and there were plot arcs that started and stopped, and uh, you know it, it followed that template. And this does not do that at all. I mean, this is really an eighteen-hour movie. It's it's very hard to look at one of the parts as an episode. Uh, they don't really have a three-act structure. You know, there isn't rising action necessarily. It just goes to the roadhouse and uh, and ends there. And there's an irony to it, really. Uh, this was a show that maybe was perfectly designed for binge-watching, for watching a huge chunks, and yet they put it on in, in weekly installments. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure you can take it apart the same way you could take apart the old show. You, uh, take it apart in a different way. There's a lot going on, and you know, there's been some great work done on you know, various fan sites and, and on the internet as people have been looking at how certain sequences in one installment parallel sequences in others and they show side-by-side comparisons. I think there's a fascinating uh, idea of how the editing was done and, and what is happening as the way scenes... I mean, you've seen that some of the scenes we've, we've experienced seem to take place out of order. Uh, was that deliberate? Was that something that they were kind of forced to do? I'd love to pull it apart that way and really try to map it out. Yeah, that's something I'm going to keep looking at. 
Well, count me among the subscribers of Blue Rose. Please give us that title again of that magazine because I feel like I'm about to screw it up. And also, are you online? Where where can we find you online? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, well the Blue Rose magazine, it's just called The Blue Rose. It's the name of the magazine, and you can find it at bluerosemag.com and subscribe. And issue three is essentially an episode guide to the first 10 parts, and that's was a tough thing to write because you don't know what's coming. Uh, although I won't put it to print until I've seen everything. And then, uh, you know, I have my own blog that I occasionally do called Above the Convenience Store. It's above the store.blogspot.com. I don't have time to work on that very often. And, uh, and I'm on Twitter at Thorn Whip. And, you know, I, I want to stay engaged with this. And this has really kind of stimulated me again. It's a fascinating work. It really is something you can, you can explore. I think for years to come. Well, John, thank you for taking the time. It's a thrill for me to speak with you. I appreciate all the inspiration and insight you've given me over the years through your work and what you're doing now. And I look forward to uh, reading all of your deconstructions and further explorations of Twin Peaks and and that of the entire (laughs) Twin Peaks fan community as well moving forward. So thanks for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I really, you know, I can talk about Twin Peaks uh, forever. So uh, I'm glad you kept me to an hour. That was good. Please do continue talking about about Twin Peaks forever. (laughs) All right. All right. I promise I'll do that. Cool. Thanks, Sean. Thanks very much, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. That wraps us up for today's special episode of a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. Thank you very much to our very special guest, John Thorne. Everybody out there, if you want to keep the conversation going, going into this finale and beyond, you can tweet at us. He's at EW Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich, not a doctor. While you're at it, you can email us too if you got some longer thoughts. Clearly, we like those. Twin Peaks at EW.com is the email address. And if you've liked uh, listening to this show as much as we have enjoyed talking during it go on apple podcast give us a rate give us a review let us know what you think a lot of conversation going into this sunday we'll be back on monday with more of a twin peaks podcast a podcast about twin peaks